Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When we talk about the unity of the story the Bible is telling, we're also talking about something else, the unity of human history, because the Bible is a record of the creation and the history of humanity. So as we speak about Scripture, we're not just speaking about the story contained in a book, we're also talking about the reality that that book chronicles of human origins and history. Last Sunday, the last Sunday of the old year, we looked at Romans 5, the analogy that Paul makes between Adam and Christ, which links the work of Jesus to the work of the very first man in all creation and shows a unity in that work, a unity in that history. And we answered the question, what is the story of Scripture, the story of humanity all about? What is it all about? It's about redemption. It's about redemption. Christ comes to solve the problem, so to speak, that is introduced in the days of Adam. So history isn't cyclical. It isn't merely a cycle. It actually has a direction. It has a trajectory. It is moving towards human salvation. So now we're going to look at another passage. At the very end of the book of Revelation, John's last vision, the vision of New Jerusalem, and we're going to be seeing how that vision also gives us a way of bringing together the story of Scripture, making connections between Old Testament and New Testament. If we know that history has a direction, that there's a story being told, and we know that the direction is towards redemption, salvation, then there's another question that we can ask, which is, what is it for? What is the point of salvation? Why is God doing what God is doing? Salvation is the thing God is doing through history. The question is, why? Why bother with that work? So that's the question that we're going to answer today on the first Sunday of the new year. History has a direction, but it also has a purpose. There's a purpose behind human history, and John's vision of New Jerusalem is going to help us discover what that purpose is. When you look at Revelation 21 and 22, this vision John has of a city of New Jerusalem, the thing that you have to realize first and foremost is that the New Jerusalem is the church in glory. The New Jerusalem is the church in glory. Now, the way that New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament is sometimes a little bit different than the way that we would interpret. When we read our Bible, we tend to interpret things grammatically and historically. And so we look at the grammar, what what do these words say? What do they mean? And then we look at the historical context and try to understand the world in which these words were originally spoken. It's not that New Testament authors don't do that. But they also do something else. They read the Old Testament typologically. So when they go to the Old Testament, they see in the Old Testament these these symbols that signify future realities, New Testament realities. Saw this last week, perfect example in Romans 5, when Paul says that Adam was the type of the one who is to come in 5.18. 
He's talking about Jesus, and he's saying Adam was the type of Jesus who was to come. That's a typological reading. He's saying that that Adam was a type of Christ, or a type of Messiah. Uh, Christ and Messiah are synonyms, two words that mean the same thing. When he says that Adam was a type of Christ, he's using the word type a little bit differently than than we tend to use it. When we say somebody is a type of something, we usually mean um, that he's some kind of something. You might say, uh, that pastor is some kind of idiot. And you mean, you know, there's a variety of types of idiot, and he's one of those. Unclear which kind, but you get the idea. That's usually how we use that term, but that's not what Paul is doing here. He doesn't mean there are a lot of types of saviors, and Adam was one of those kinds of savior. Instead, when he uses the word type, he's he's using it uh, to suggest a, a symbol or a sign or a shadow. It's similar to the way that the author of Hebrews, as we've seen many times before, talks about the the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem. Now, we would look at that temple and we would say there is something more real about that structure than there is about, like, heaven, which we imagine as a sort of cloudy, ethereal, incorporeal sort of place. The walls of the temple you can walk up to and, and pound your fist on. You can touch them. They're real. But the author of Hebrews says, actually, they are a shadow. They are a, an imperfect copy, a representation of a higher reality in heaven. That ethereal thing that you think of as being cloudy and insubstantial is more real than the physical thing that you can touch. That's typology. Seeing examples, seeing shadows, copies... Copy would be a good word to think about because when we say type, types are derivative copies of an archetype, a higher ultimate type. So whenever you hear uh, old-time theologians talk about the, the Old Testament being full of types of Christ, that's what they mean, that there are all these stories, these figures in the Old Testament which somehow anticipate, reflect, or reveal certain aspects of Jesus to us. The reality that was to be fully realized later is pictured in a limited way by this type that comes earlier. Now, in the book of Revelation, before we get to the the passage that we're going to look at, even like physical places, cities are used in this way. Uh, Babylon is a city, a real city that you, you could go to, you could live there. There were beautiful gardens at one point. It was a place on the map. But in the book of Revelation, it takes on sign value. It represents. And Jerusalem is the same way. Jerusalem, obviously, it's a a place. I almost said with a zip code. I don't know if they have zip codes in Jerusalem. But it's a place on the map. You can find it. You could go and visit there. But spiritually, Jerusalem is used to, to signify more than just that location on the map that we're familiar with. Now, the book of Revelation is famously difficult. It's the favorite book of the Bible for early teenage boys because it uh, reveals the, the beast of Revelation and there are all of these interesting symbols to unpack. And you can go down a lot of rabbit holes trying to interpret this symbolism, especially if you try to interpret it without using the rest of Scripture to guide your interpretation. But William Hendrickson, who wrote 
uh, a really good book on the book of Revelation says the apocalypse, the revelation is a book of symbols, but it's not a book of riddles. It's not a book of riddles. Sometimes the symbols are actually explained for us in the text. They're not mysterious. And that's the way it is in Revelation 21. We have the new Jerusalem. It is a sign. It it represents something, but what it represents is not ambiguous. It's actually revealed to us in the text. The city of new Jerusalem is the church. It is the church, but it's not the church as it is now. It is the church as it will be. You might think of the church as we are now as as another shadow that anticipates a coming fullness or reality. That's what's being shown by the New Jerusalem. It is the church in glory. So the city is the bride. If you look at our text, the first couple of sentences, this vision is introduced. There's an angel who comes to John and introduces the vision, says, I want to show you something. And it's interesting because the angel tells him he's going to show him one thing, but when he turns to look, it's actually something else. We read these words, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, this is the last vision in the book of Revelation. It comes after the marriage feast of the Lamb. It comes after, uh, earlier in Revelation 21, the new heaven and the new earth. So we're seeing a snapshot of the bride of Christ, the church, but seeing it after this recreation of heaven and earth. So we're seeing the church in glory, not the church uh, militant, as we sometimes say, but the church triumphant, the church made into the thing that God has promised the church will be. The city is the church. It's the bride of Christ in glory. And God's glory gives the city its radiance. When the city comes down, it comes down with the glory of God, giving it its brightness, its clarity, its shine. All of that is associated with the city. And there's something interesting that you observe about this city as you read further. We're told about the architecture of the city, how it's made, its gates, its foundations, and the names of these things are given to us, and they're significant because the the, the 12 gates of the city are named after the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 foundations of the city are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. John says it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, you'll notice... We keep talking about the city here. It's it's singular. We're talking about one city, not two. Not two cities with a, a, a connecting thoroughfare. Not two cities on hills next to one another. One city. 
And that city's gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, figures that loom large in the Old Testament and Old Covenant times. And the 12 foundations are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb, the founding fathers, so to speak, of the New Testament church. They come together, Old Testament to New. The tribes of Israel and the apostles of the church come together to form one structure. Not two, one structure. Israel and the church are not two separate entities. They are the same entity. This church, this foundation built on the apostles with the gates named after the tribes, this is the Israel of God. The new Jerusalem unifies Israel and the church. It's clear from the way that Paul talks about Israel. He says, who is a Jew? Who is a Jew? One who is circumcised Outwardly, or one who is circumcised inwardly, it's clear that he sees continuity between Israel and the church. Not a separation, not a division, not two different plans of God, but one. It's just as clear here in this vision of New Jerusalem that the church, the city, is built of the tribes and the apostles made into one. So, the New Jerusalem is the church in glory. The church in glory, furthermore, is the temple to come. The church in glory is the temple to come. If you keep reading the vision, things get really, let's say, Levitical. There's a stereotypical idea we have of Old Testament writing. In the book of Leviticus, occasionally you get into these lengthy passages and you scratch your head and say, I really have no idea what I just read. It was so super detailed about things that seem to have no significance. And it seems like John has read his Old Testament Levitical passages because he starts getting into some fine detail that we might tend to gloss over, but it actually has a huge significance it's worth uh, thinking about. So picking up with the vision, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, all of this may seem strange, and when you're, you're approaching the end of the book of Revelation, you might think, John, you should spend your last moments giving us something a little bit more significant than, than measurements of the city, just to make sure everything is squared up, just as it should be. But the only reason it seems that way to us is we don't know our Old Testament that well. Because it turns out that this vision of the new Jerusalem, the the church in glory, actually has roots in another vision, an Old Testament vision. 
This is the last vision of the book of Revelation. If you open up your Bible and you go back to the book of Ezekiel, the final vision in the book of Ezekiel is a vision of a new temple, a new temple that is to come. And this vision of John's is brief in comparison. Ezekiel's vision begins in chapter 40 and runs through chapter 48, the end of the book of Ezekiel. And in that vision, an angel with a measuring rod goes through the temple and carefully measures everything, every quadrant, every sector. He situates the whole outline of the temple, of its surrounding places, of the city that it finds itself in. All of it is carefully detailed in language that's very similar to the language that John uses here. We can dig into the significance of of the types of jewels and how they correspond to uh, jewels in the breastplate of the, the Old Testament high priests and other details like that. But the big picture connection I want you to see is between John's vision of New Jerusalem and Ezekiel's final vision of the temple that is to come. Now, John gives a lot less detail than Ezekiel, but the details he gives are telling. They are significant. They make the connection between the two very clear. Ezekiel describes a new temple that's elaborately measured. He gives details of its elaborate rituals. This temple faces east. It has an eastern gate, which is used only by the prince of the city. A river flows from out of the temple towards the east, and on the banks of this river are trees whose fruit, whose leaves, we are told, are for healing. That's Ezekiel, but it becomes significant in our text in just a moment, as we'll see. And at the end of Ezekiel's vision, if you go to the very last verse in the book of Ezekiel, in in chapter 48, verse 35, after describing the temple, after describing the city where the temple is located, Ezekiel finally tells us the name of the place that he is describing. The name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there is the name of the place that Ezekiel describes. And this is the place that John describes too. The new Jerusalem, this church in glory that he has this vision from an angel of connects back to this revelation of the new temple of Ezekiel. And clearly this temple has the significance that temples do in the Old Testament. The temple is Well, what is the temple for? You ever thought about it? Like, what is the purpose of the temple, the significance of the temple in the Old Testament? Obviously, the temple is where you go to worship, where people gather to worship. And it matters geographically where you worship in those days before the coming of Christ. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, the the woman at the well, she asked, where should we worship? Where should our worship be oriented Right? That's an important question. Well, the temple is the place where you worship, but not because it's the temple. The temple is the place where you worship because the temple is the place where God is present. The reason the temple is significant is it is the place where God dwells. When the tabernacle and then the temple after it were built, God's presence there was signified by this cloud of glory that descended, this presence that filled the place, that signified that this is where the God who made all things has has come down to meet with his people. That's why it was a significant place. It was the dwelling place for God. 
And indeed, in Ezekiel's vision, after describing the temple, he actually uh, sees further. He sees God taking up occupation, coming and inhabiting his temple. We read in Ezekiel 43, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And John sees the same thing, not just a place, but the presence of God in that place. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the church in glory is the temple that Ezekiel saw, the temple that is to come. In a particular sense, it is the place where God dwells, the city that God inhabits so that there is no need of some edifice to represent his presence because he's there. And his radiance, his glory fills the place. It's more than just that they don't need a temple, like a physical structure. They don't need a sun to illuminate the place because God's glory does that instead. Now, David had wanted to build a house for God in the Old Testament, and he'd been told he couldn't do it. In fact, God came back to him and said, no, no, I will build a house for you, and your son will build a house for me. This is one of those prophecies that has um, growing significance over time. Immediately, the son in mind is Solomon, who builds that temple of Solomon. But ultimately, the son of David that the prophecy has in mind is Christ, who builds, indeed, a household for God, a place where God can dwell, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, when he talks about us. When he talks about you and me, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You and me, the church, the people of God, being built by Christ into a dwelling place for God, into a temple, the holy temple, we are being built into it. Now, all of this, the prophecy of Ezekiel, the promise that was made to David, even the words here of Paul, all of it is what we see being fulfilled in the vision that is given to John. This is all of that coming into fulfillment because the church is not just the temple that is to come. It's something more than that. The church in glory is also Eden fully realized. We can take New Jerusalem and trace it back to the tabernacle and the temple, but we can actually go farther than that. Just as Paul connected Christ to Adam, this place, this New Jerusalem, this church in glory, is connected back to the first place on the map, Eden. When John describes the city in Revelation 22, 
our, our last paragraph in our text. It has a river, there's a tree of life. These are details that recall details from the Garden of Eden. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. and They will reign forever and ever. Just as Ezekiel had seen, there's a, a river that flows out from the presence of God. On its banks are trees whose fruit are for the healing of the nations. All of this has come to pass in the new Jerusalem and all of it harkens back to the garden. In 2002, Tim Keller wrote this influential paper of biblical theology of the city. It's, it's something that a lot of PCA church planting harkens back to, this vision for uh, the church being in the city and ministering to the city. A lot of times you'll, you'll hear people summarizing the story of Scripture by, by pointing out that the Bible story begins in a garden but ends in a city. And the city they're referring to is this one, New Jerusalem. And Keller makes that observation in this paper. But it's interesting because he's not saying the story begins in a garden and ends in a city because it's a narrative of progress. And we started off as this sort of primitive agrarian people, but eventually we became sophisticated and built cities. And it's much better to live in cities than it is to live out in the country, as we all know. Therefore, this is like the height of, of human progress when you finally reach a, a city. That's not the point, because the city that the Bible ends on is a recapitulation or a fulfillment of the promise of the garden where it all begins. Keller writes these words, when we look at the New Jerusalem, we discover something strange. In the midst of the city is a crystal river, and on each side of the river is the tree of life, bearing fruit and leaves which heal the nations of all their wounds and the effects of the divine covenant curse. This city is the Garden of Eden remade. The city is the fulfillment of the purposes of the Eden of God. <laughs> the city is the garden, fully realized. All its potential finally worked out. G.K. Beale calls the New Jerusalem Eden completely expanded. And he points out something interesting that I'd never noticed before about the temple. Because the temple was in the heart of a city, it was this great urban structure. But if you went inside the temple and you looked at the decorative motifs, the way that the temple was decorated, there were carvings of trees and fruit. It was a pastoral motif. The, the, the decoration of the temple recalled the garden before it. And now this final representation of, of the temple and, and the city of God's people harkens back to the garden where the human story began. Remember what I said at the beginning, if history has a direction, redemption, then history also has a purpose. And if we realize that the new Jerusalem is the church in glory and that the church in glory is the temple to come and it is Eden fully realized, then the purpose of the history becomes clear. The purpose of redemption is the restoration of communion 
between God and humanity. Something that was true in the garden, although not perfect, but true in the garden is being restored by Christ and ultimately is fully restored. There was in the Garden of Eden a communion between God and humanity. It was broken by sin. But throughout the history that follows, there's this drama that unfolds about dwelling place for God. Where will God dwell? Where will God meet with his people? We have the tabernacle and the temple, and finally the church as the working out of that question. But that's the question that drives it. That's the purpose behind it. The reason for our salvation is God is making for himself a place to dwell, a place where he can meet with us and we can commune with him, enjoy the intimacy with one another that we were made for. That's the purpose behind this work of salvation. Eden was a place where God could be present with his people. The tabernacle and the temple were meeting places for God and his people. And our worship now, even though it's not fully realized, even though sometimes it's hard to look at your surroundings and say, oh yeah, this is the presence of God, we do truly enter into the presence of God by faith and meet with him. But this is a kind of shadow. It is a kind of copy of a future reality, one that we anticipate the full realization of when Christ comes again. This is a type, it is a sign, it is a shadow of a fuller communion. And it is that fuller communion that we long for, that fuller communion that John sees pictured in the New Jerusalem, a place where God dwells with his people, where his glory fills the place, where we need nothing else but him, and we enjoy him and glorify him forever. And what that means is that the so-called greatest story ever told turns out to be a love story, a love story about the self-sacrifice of God, the, the fact that he would stop at nothing in order to be reunited with those whom he loved. We sometimes say, like, we would be driven by love to do things. I would do anything to be together with, with the one that I love. I would move heaven and earth to make it happen. But God does more. He remakes heaven and earth to make it so out of love. We fell from union with him because of sin, but he didn't leave us to our just deserts. Instead, he brought us back to him through Christ's body. He brought us back to him through Christ's physical sacrifice, reconciling us by Christ's death, giving us life by Christ's bodily resurrection promising us life by building us into the body of Christ, symbolically speaking, the church, and sustaining us by letting us come to the table and feast his body and blood to give us strength through his presence. We will be with him. That's what this vision says. We will see him face to face. The aspiration of all human worship, the quest has been to see God face to face to have this unmediated communion, to fill the absence that sin has caused. It will happen. We will see him face to face. The deepest longings of the human heart, the greatest need will be fulfilled. That's the testimony of Scripture. 
and the testimony of history. We will be the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And the name of the city will be the Lord is there. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.